Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. This is your host, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm a psychologist, and I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm coming to you live from Washington, D.C. So I mentioned this is a special episode. We had some different intro music. I might sound different sound quality-wise because I don't have my usual sound setup. I'm actually recording this overlooking the United States Capitol from my hotel room. So I'm just on my laptop. I apologize if there's some sound quality issues. But I thought, what else am I going to do in my hotel room besides record a podcast episode? So I thought we would dedicate this episode to service animals and emotional support animals, which has to do with United States legislation. So I apologize for international listeners. Um, this will get into U.S. legislation a little bit. Um, but in this episode, I thought we'd discuss the difference between emotional support animals and service animals. We'd also talk about whether, like if you're renting a place with a no pet rule, so you're renting an apartment, you're renting a, a house, whether you're allowed to have an emotional support animal. And um, we'll talk about whether you're allowed to travel with an emotional support animal on an airplane. I remember a few years ago, I'm re recording this episode in November. It was about this time of year in the United States, Thanksgiving time of year, where somebody traveled on an airplane with, I think it was a Delta airplane, with an emotional support turkey, whether you're allowed to, to travel with an emotional support turkey. Um, I took an airplane to get here to D.C., and I never say on an airplane, you know, you, you usually sit next to somebody and it's kind of awkward. They're trying to make small talk on the airplane. They ask, you know, what do you do for a living? And I never tell anybody I'm a psychologist because I don't want to be anybody's personal therapist for, you know, the duration of the plane ride. I usually say I'm like a mathematician or I'm into statistics or something and just something boring that shuts the conversation down. So I'll answer all those questions and more in this episode. Let's start out by talking about what the definition of a service animal is. And if you get into the literature, you'll see service animal is usually abbreviated SA. And according to the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, a service animal is, quote, individually trained to, quote, perform tasks for the benefit of an individual with a disability, end quote. So a service animal, according to the ADA, limits the definition to dogs and there might be a loophole for miniature horses. There was this 2011 publication by the U S department of justice that mentioned miniature horses, if properly trained and in very specific situations. But almost always when we talk about service animals, we're talking about service dogs. So we might as well just call them service dogs. And in addition to that S a acronym for service animal, you'll also see the acronym PSA. Not for a public service announcement, but for psychiatric service animal. And I'm working off of this article by Doofley and colleagues from 2015. And according to this article, service animals do very specific tasks. So they might provide safety checks or room searches for individuals with PTSD. They might block people in dissociative episodes from wandering into dangerous situations. So like, for example, wandering into traffic. Or they might prevent or even interrupt impulsive or destructive behaviors like self-mutilation, like self-harm. So that's some of the tasks that psychiatric service animals might do. And service animals, again, they're protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. They're protected by ADA. 
and generally they're allowed in public places. However, there are a lot of misconceptions that are out there on service animals. And so in order to address some of these misconceptions, I thought I would go to the source. I would go to the U.S. Department of Justice. And so there's a question or a series of questions and answers on the U.S. Department of Justice website. The first one is, if someone's dog calms them while having an anxiety attack, does this qualify as a service animal or a psychiatric service animal? And the answer on this is it depends. So the ADA makes a distinction between psychiatric service animals and emotional support animals. We'll talk about emotional support animals later. I think it makes more sense to address and define service animals first. So if a dog has been trained to sense that an anxiety attack is about to happen and take a specific, keyword there being specific, action to avoid the attack or lessen its impact, then it would qualify as a service animal. However, if it's just the dog's mere presence, providing comfort, that would not be considered a service animal under the ADA. And so that's one question a lot of people happen. Another question involves specialized training. So does the ADA require service animals to be professionally trained? And surprisingly, the answer from the U.S. Department of Justice, and I feel like this is a common misconception, is no. People with disabilities have the right to train dogs themselves and are not required to use a professional service to train their dogs. So lots of misconceptions out there about service animals, which again are protected by the ADA. That'll be a big distinction when addressing the difference between service animals and ESAs, which are emotional support animals. We'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, I also found this 2022 American Psychiatric Association resource document really helpful in prepping for this episode. So today, again, I'm in D.C., um, during my lunch break, we had like a two-hour lunch break, which is crazy long for a conference. And I decided to go for a run because the weather here in D.C. is beautiful. It's like 70 degrees. It's sunny. Perfect running weather. And I promised some of my students back at CBU that I would go to the American Psychological Association headquarters and the American Psychiatric Association headquarters. They're both here in D.C. They're about a mile and a half apart. And I said I'd go. I'd go for a run, I'd take a selfie in front of the headquarters of each APA. And so that's what I did during my lunch break. This comes from the American Psychiatric Association, so the APA that publishes the DSM-5. One question is, a new patient brought a dog to his initial appointment. Our clinic allows service animals, but not emotional support animals. Under the ADA, am I or my staff allowed to ask if it is a service animal? And that's a loaded question, whether you're allowed to ask if it's a service animal or not. And, you know, it can leave yourself open to litigation if you ask that question. So the answer to this is under the ADA, there are limits on what can be asked. One tactful way you could ask this is, is the animal a service animal that is required because of a disability? So is the animal a service animal that is required because of a disability? It's a very specific way, tactful way that you could ask this. You can also ask, what work or task is the animal trained to perform? So there are some questions you're allowed to ask if you're a clinic operator such. Um, it's interesting, this um, conference that I'm attending, it's AUCD, which stands for the American University Centers on Developmental Disabilities. Or on disabilities, but a lot of the disabilities cover developmental disabilities. And I'm recording this episode on a Monday. Unfortunately, I'm flying out on a Wednesday morning. But if I were to stay around 
on Wednesday, uh, which I can't because of my flight. <clears throat> I apologize for coughing there. Um, I would get to go to Capitol Hill and we would get to meet with uh, a couple of U.S. senators and advocate for disability rights. And service animals, again, under ADA, are very important to disability rights. So I feel like, again, this is very relevant to record this episode while I'm in D.C. and while I'm attending this conference. All right, so we've got an answer to that on service animals versus ESA and are you allowed to ask if it's a service animal? You can ask very tactfully those two questions. All right, another question. My patient's dog growled at me and urinated in the waiting room. Do I still need to allow the animal in my office? The answer to this is no. Um, even if the dog were a service animal that's protected under ADA, there are provisions in ADA that say that a service animal can be excluded from the premises. They don't have to be in your office. If they're not housebroken or if the animal is out of control and the animal's handler does not take effective action. So if an animal's aggressive and if they're using the restroom on your floor, that's not protected under ADA. All right, another question regarding allergies. So what if somebody's allergic to a service animal? So let's say you get a job um, and somebody you work with um, has a service animal, but you're allergic to dogs. Whose concern wins? Your coworker who needs a service animal for their disability or you with an allergy to dogs? Um, the answer to this is you should try to separate your concerns from the coworker's concerns as best as possible. So try to make accommodations so you can work apart. But your allergy does not win in this situation. Your coworker's need for a service animal will win out in the situation. So your allergy is not an excuse to exclude someone's service animal from a work premises. Similar to this question, you might have a question about fear of dogs. So what if somebody is scared of dogs? Let's say you're on the DC Metro. Um, I read the Metro today and someone gets on the Metro, which is, you know, an underground train, kind of like the Paris Metro London underground, somebody gets on there with a service dog and you've been traumatized before. So let's say you extreme case, you have PTSD. You've been the victim of a dog attack in the past. You don't feel comfortable around this dog. Whose concern wins? Your concern about the dog um, and possibly hurting you because of your traumatic experience or the person with the service animal bringing them on the metro. And very similar to the allergy situation, the person with the... Um, service animal trumps your fear of dogs. So we've covered service animals a little bit. They're covered under the American with Disabilities Act, so they do have legal protection, um, and you need them for a very specific task. They're trained in a specific task. So the process of getting a service animal is fairly restrictive. It's very legislated. Emotional support animals, ESAs, are less legislated. And they go by a variety of names because, again, less regulated. They're sometimes called therapy animals, comfort animals, companion animals. Um, most aren't specially or individually, individually trained to perform a specific task. Sometimes they can recognize the need to help, but they're not like super specifically trained. Um, remember, ADA is federal legislation in the United States. 
Um, states can also offer more specific protection for emotional support animals. Um, so just because ADA only protects um, service animals at the federal level, that doesn't prohibit individual states. Like, for example, Rhode Island. Rhode Island has specific legislation that protects emotional support animals. So, But in general, most states are not going to protect emotional support animals. Um, emotional support animals aren't specially trained. So a lot of times they're just comfort animals. If you're having an anxiety attack, for example, you feel more comforted with this pet there. You can pet them. Their fur feels nice and soft and they sort of regulate your emotions, but they're not able to sense your anxiety attacks or perform a specific function. They're there for comfort purposes. They're not specially trained. They might have passed like the canine good citizen test or whatever, but they're not usually specially trained. Um, and emotional support animal, the label is more broad than service animals. So if you recall with service animals, it's restricted to dogs and possibly miniature horses. Emotional support animals, generally we're talking about dogs, but it could extend to cats and emotional support turkeys and what have you. And while ADA, which is federal legislation, again, does not specifically protect emotional support animals, there is some federal legislation that does protect emotional support animals. So, for example, you're, if you're renting an apartment, going back to one of the questions I asked originally, if you're renting an apartment or a house, does having an emotional support animal, is that protected from a no-pet rule? And it's not protected by ADA, but it is protected by different federal law. Um, it's protected by the Fair Housing Act. And according to the Fair Housing Act, if the emotional support animal is, quote, a reasonable accommodation, and that acronym reasonable in ADA legislation is loaded, that's where all the interpretation comes in, um, then it, and this is not ADA, though, this is a Fair Housing Act, but reasonable in federal legalese is very difficult to um, determine, and that's sort of where the basis of legislation usually comes in. Um, but if this animal is a reasonable accommodation, then this overrides no pet rules. Um, and it also overrides, like, let's say your apartment or your condo or your house that you're renting requires like a pet deposit or pet fees. You don't have to pay them if the emotional support animal is a reasonable accommodation. So that's protected. Now my example of the emotional support turkey on a, a, a Delta Airlines flight. Is that protected? So another piece of federal legislation separate from ADA is the Air Carrier Access Act, which was passed way back 20 years ago in 2003. And according to this act, um, you can have an emotional support animal on an airline flight. Originally, 20 years ago, you had to have on a letterhead from a licensed mental health care professional um, some sort of diagnosis saying that they have a mental health condition that's in the DSM and that the animal that's accompanying them is necessary for that passenger's mental health or is necessary for their treatment. And that the individual that's put this on the letterhead is a licensed mental health professional that's assessed the person. And it also requires a date, a signature, and the professional's license and the state that they're licensed in, which seems a little bit intrusive. Um, and so there was some pushback to this. And two years ago in 2021, um, 
there was some case precedence that said you don't need the letterhead anymore. And you don't actually need the DSM-5 diagnosis. You just need that um, to sort of declare to the airline that, hey, I have a disability and this is my emotional support animal. Um, there's actually a form that you can fill out online. I don't even know that I mentioned the reason behind this episode. So um, I think I might have mentioned it in sort of a mailbag in the episode prior to this. Um, I did an episode on animals a few episodes ago, sort of my clinical run-ins with animals um, over the years. Uh, but I was teaching my psychopathology class, um, I think it was about a month ago, and we had on campus what was called a bark break, which meant that some animals were brought in, uh, some dogs specifically, I don't think there were cats or anything else, some dogs were brought in to campus um, that students could pet. Um, before their midterm exams. It was supposed to be sort of calming and you can spend some time with a dog. Um, a lot of my students are living apart from sort of their childhood animals that they grew up with. And, you know, it's comforting to be able to, to pet a dog and um, get some downtime in. So my psychopathology class, I let go. I was like 20 minutes um, before class was supposed to end. I was like, hey, let's go to Bark Break. Let's call it a day and we'll go and pet some dogs. And so I thought it would be sort of this uplifting experience for my students. And um, we walked down to where the dogs were outside. And uh, it turns out some of my students were really upset because they learned the background of some of these dogs, um, which were with the local animal shelter. And apparently like two of them were scheduled to be euthanized. We have a kills shelter here in Memphis. Um, we're scheduled to be euthanized the next week. And so I had students that were like leaving in tears and it really backfired on me to have this being like a uplifting experience. Um, turns out the dogs got a, a adopted, which is great. They were not euthanized. They, they got adopted. Everything has a happy ending, but my bark break um, backfired on me. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this on previous episodes, but in addition to my two kids who I'm always talking about in episodes, um, I have two dogs, uh, two rescue dogs. So my wife and I used to, before we had kids, foster dogs. And I think before we had kids, we fostered over 30 dogs. Most of them were puppies, um, but we were very active in the foster game. We'd foster dogs. We'd work with a local pet rescue, and we'd get them adopted. Um, and we haven't done that very often because we have kids now, and we were also foster failures for two dogs, which means that we ended up keeping two dogs and now we have kind of a full household with the chickens, the dogs and a rescue cat. So we have two rescue dogs and a rescue cat. And um, my dogs are eight years and 10 years old now. So they're older, but my eight-year-old dog still acts like a puppy. And we had originally thought about getting him trained to become a service animal or uh, an emotional support animal, not a service animal because he would not be working for me. He would just be more of an emotional support animal, not protected under ADI again. Um, he also has this gnarly scar down his back from this accident. What, I don't know what happened to him before he got him. I, I got him when he was about six months old. I mentioned him in my, uh, my animal episode, how I got him um, sort of in a clinical setting when I was working in school. We don't know how he got that scar. And I thought, you know, he'd be great as an emotional support animal because he's experienced some hardship before. Um, and he's also kind of chill- as a lab. He's a black lab. Um, I thought he was chill. We ended up getting him some dog training and he was not very good at the training. Um, but my, my thought, my hope for him 
was to have him in like, you know, one of those orange vests for emotional support animals. And you can go online to like the National Service Animal Registry and get them, get a dog, like some official looking gear to make them look like a legit emotional support animal. Um, Things like the National Service Animal Registry, though, they're not federally run, they're privately run. So while it looks official, it doesn't really hold any legal weight. Um, what does hold some weight though, is getting an ESA evaluation. So an ESA evaluation can be done by a mental health care provider that says that essentially you could benefit from having an emotional support animal. So after this bark break that I just talked about, I had one of my students come to me, she lives in the dorms and she was like, Hey, could you write me a letter? saying I need an emotional support animal. And that would rescue this dog from potential euthanasia. And I could have this animal and I would feel, you know, much better having this animal in my presence in my dorm room. I was like, you know, I think I can do that as a psychologist. Because I'd read some articles before about how psychologists can, you know, recommend, prescribe essentially emotional support animals. But I'd never done that before. I was like, you know, I think I could do it, but I don't know if it's a good idea. Let me look into it. Um, So here's what I found in looking into that. There are two required components to an ESA, to an emotional support animal evaluation. And the first is to determine whether the patient has a chronic mental impairment due to a psychiatric condition as defined by the DSM-5. So that's sort of similar to what you would look at for a psychiatric service animal. Um, This psychiatric condition needs to limit functioning in one or more areas, one or more life areas, which would make it a disability. Um, the second criteria is to determine whether the emotional support animal will d- alleviate these specific impairments. Um, distinguishing this from the service animal component, emotional support animals, again, are not specifically trained to perform a task. They can just be well-behaved, look cute, and be calming, but they're not going to preempt an anxiety attack. They're not going to preempt Um, an incidence of self-mutilation. They're not trained to sort of sniff that out. Um, It's usually their mere presence. And usually emotional support animals are just super chill. They sort of lay there and their presence is really calming. So you need those two components for an ESA evaluation. Um, Psychiatrists and psychologists should also consider um, how the person might be able to care for the animal. So if we're talking somebody with a serious mental illness, it might not be the best idea um, to put an animal in their care. They might not be the best caretaker for an animal. Also, um, on the flip side of that, looking at the ability of the animal to serve as an emotional support animal. Can the animal be up to that task? Um, And there's a really good article by Youngren and colleagues. And Youngren and colleagues sort of elaborate that Disability does not mean that the individual has an attachment to the emotional support animal, feels happier in the proximity of the emotional support animal, or just wants to accompany the animal, which is usually their pet. It means that the person requires the presence of the animal to function or remain psychologically stable. So it's not just you feel better in the presence of the animal, you actually need this animal. Um, And again, less restrictive than service animals, but you still have the need for an emotional support animal. Um, I know emotional support animals are a trendy topic, but there are some complications we need to keep in mind when talking about 
emotional support animals. And the first is, and I found this in prepping for this episode, there's not much research. There's very limited evidence on the effectiveness of emotional support animals. So there needs to be a lot more research into whether emotional support animals are effective. Um, there's not that much out there. A second potential complication is the potential for dual relationship problems for multiple roles. So I think traditionally psychologists that are serving as therapists, they're well-meaning. They have a client that's like, I need this emotional support animal. I feel better in the presence of them. Can you write me, you know, this letter saying that I need them? But you're already serving in the role as therapist and essentially now you're being drug into the role of being a forensic evaluator. So you're sort of a non-neutral party. And it might negatively affect the therapeutic relationship if you were to say, no, I don't really think you need an emotional support animal. Um, you're probably not a biased, uh, or you're not probably not an objective. Um, you probably are biased. You're probably not an objective, non-biased, third party in the situation. So ideally, this would be kicked to some mental health provider that has never seen you before, um, which is how forensic evaluations work. Um, and when you, we're doing forensic evaluations, like when I did d disability determinations in the past, those are standalone tasks. I've never seen that person before. Um, so I'm going in with sort of this blank slate. I don't have a therapeutic relationship with the person. And I'm trying to get some objective information to make a disability determination. So different than what's going on here. Um, so maybe this needs to be more the forensic route where there's no pre-existing relationship between the person that's doing the emotional support animal evaluation and the person that needs the animal. So it might not be ideal for therapists to be making this recommendation. Um, additionally, there is a very small possibility. Let's say you're a psychologist and you recommend that your client or you're a forensic psychologist and you recommend that the person that's coming to see you um, has an emotional support animal. Let's say this emotional support animal ends up, uh, you've never seen them before, you just say they need an ESA and they end up adopting a dog and this dog ends up biting somebody. There is a small possibility that you as the prescribing or recommending mental health care practitioner might be liable for that dog's bite. It's a very small possibility, but something you should take into consideration. So, in returning to my student's question about whether I could write them a letter recommending an emotional support animal, that would not be a good idea on multiple levels. The first being multiple relationships. So I'm this student's professor, and in this situation, I would also be sort of an evaluator for an emotional support animal, that's multiple roles. That's flirting with disaster. Not a good idea. Also, I have not like legitimately assessed them. So there needs to be some assessment that goes into whether you need an emotional support animal. The more formalized the assessment, the better. So maybe giving some sort of measure for anxiety or depression or whatever the presenting complaint is um, would be a good idea. Again, I wouldn't be the best person to do that because I'm also their instructor, their professor. Um, so, yeah, probably not a good idea for me to write that student a letter because I'm in a teaching relationship and that would require either a therapeutic or forensic relationship depending on sort of what advice you're following 
whether this needs to be a therapist or forensic evaluator that recommends the ESA. All right. So that was this episode. Um, send me some more episode ideas. Um, I've got one or two that are in the mailbag. Um, you can send episode ideas to ctaylo 41 at cbu.edu. I'll try to turn them into future episodes. Um, this week's mailbag comes from Canada. So I don't know if I mentioned this on a previous episode, but I actually used to date a girl from Canada. Um, so I would visit Ontario pretty frequently. Um, I don't know that I'm allowed back in Canada. Anyways, long story. All right, <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, hello from Canada. Um, this is a paramedic student. Um, she says, I uh, love listening to your podcast and I'm happy to say that I can also find it applicable to my schooling. It's great. Um, I was wondering if you could do an episode on electroconvulsion therapy. Back in high school, I was diagnosed and admitted to the hospital with anorexia nervosa and also ended up getting treated for depression and anxiety. Um, she goes on, I've made a recovery and no longer struggle with this. But due to the doctor's feeling that my meds weren't working, I was given multiple sessions of ECT. My family and I were warned that there might be side effects of temporary short-term memory loss, but unfortunately, these treatments ended up almost completely erasing my long-term memory. This left me quite lost in um, terms of my identity and feeling like I didn't know who I was. After a few years, I was able to build up enough new memories to feel like I had a sense of identity again. The whole situation has left me very curious about the treatments. I haven't quite finished listening to all your episodes, so my apologies if you discuss this later. Thank you. This is a very timely episode topic because I was talking about ECT with some of my undergrads the other day, and uh, they wanted more information, and I was like, this would make a really good podcast episode. So I think my next episode will be devoted to electroconvulsive therapy. Um, but again, send me some other episode ideas. All right. I think I'm going to go and maybe walk around the Capitol a little bit more. Again, the weather is super beautiful here. Um, so let's call it an end of this special episode. I think I might do another special episode before the end of this semester, too. Um, some of my students have talked about doing a live episode with Q&A um, in class, maybe in my psychopathology class. So I'm going to entertain that idea um, in the next month. But until those future episodes, take care, stay well. And I'll see you when I'm back in Memphis.